I don't know if you guys got in, into it this week, but on uh, Instagram, I saw some of uh, the first pick challenge, you know, where you put uh, the first picture of you and your significant other. Maybe it was when you were dating, maybe it was when you were just friends, and I love looking at them. Uh, they, they made me laugh. For some of you, you guys have aged more than others. Uh, but I, I got to put mine out there. Uh, here it is. Uh, this is from the year 1986, school year 86-87. Ms. Vogelsang uh, was my teacher, and you know who was in my class? Jenna. We're in the same kindergarten class together. Now, I'm not trying to top yours, but I just got to show it. And it got me thinking, well, what if there was the awkward adolescent challenge where we had to put out a picture of our 12, 13-year-old self? I mean, they're all awkward, aren't they? I mean, mine would be pretty awkward because of my haircut. I had what uh, some people refer to as the butt cut. It was when you've got it parted right down the middle. It's real long on top, so it goes off to side to side, and then you've got uh, the sides shaved all the way around. Now, my clothes would have been all right now because most of the clothes from the early 90s are kind of in style again. And if you were to put your awkward uh, adolescent picture up, what would it look like? Well, is it the fact that you had braces? It makes you blush a little bit. Maybe it's the fact that uh, you were trying to pull off alternative when in your heart of hearts you were a preppy. Maybe it was the fact that your legs were twice as long as your torso. I don't know what it is, but almost all of us have gone through that stage. If you didn't go through that stage, you're a fortunate soul. But here's the thing that not any of us talk about when it comes to the awkward adolescent stage. It's the fact that it lingers on. And sometimes it never really goes away. See, when you're an adolescent, you become aware of your body in a way that you weren't before. All of a sudden, you're an adolescent, you look at yourself in your mirror and you feel insecure. All of a sudden, you go to the beach, you go to the pool when most of your body is exposed and you feel a sense of shame. And this awareness of your body, this really never goes away. And from this point forward, we have this uneasiness about our bodies. And maybe unease, uneasiness isn't, doesn't go far enough. Maybe the word that really clicks for you when it comes to your body is disdain. You hate the limitations of your body. You hate how your body ages. You hate the shape of your body. And maybe you're feeling that acutely right now during the quarantine. You're looking at the social medias and you're seeing other people's bodies that you think are better than yours. You're beginning to eat your feelings and you don't feel as good about your body. Maybe it's the fact that what made you feel good about your body was where you went and worked out, the studio you were a part of, and all of a sudden that's out of your routine. So your body. I don't know what it is for you, but what I do know is that when it comes to Easter, when it comes to the resurrection, and the fact that it's about a body, for many of us, it's a struggle. We want the resurrection to have something to do with something besides our bodies. Because if it really is about the resurrection of the body, then we have to deal with our current view of our body in the here and now. We want Easter to be about something spiritual. And by spiritual, I mean the opposite of physical. We want Easter to lift our spirits. We want Easter to give us this interior life, this subjective stuff. Well, that's what the Greeks and the Romans were comfortable with in the first century during Jesus' day. They believe in the immortality of the soul. They didn't have any problem with most of Jesus' teaching. What they had a problem with was the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. And that sounds like our day, doesn't it? I mean, you hear words like reincarnation, rebirth. You hear about the afterlife, even hell and heaven. And it's about this generic religious sense, not anything particularly Christian. 
But what is particularly Christian is the resurrection of the body. And if we're honest, this makes us as Christians on Easter terribly uncomfortable too. And if so, we find ourselves in really good company. When we look at one of the resurrection accounts from Mark, 16th chapter, the end of his gospel, we see three women who are terribly uncomfortable at the tomb. So let's read it together. Mark 16, we'll read verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. See, can you imagine being these women? Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, Salome. They wake up the morning after, a couple mornings after Jesus had died, and they're asking the same question that they ask every morning, except this time they're in a very somber state. But the question they're asking has been the one that they've been asking ever since they met this man named Jesus. And it's, what can I do to please Jesus today? And the best they can come up with is, hey, I'm going to grab the girls. We're here in Jerusalem. We're going to go outside the city uh, to where Jesus has been buried, and we're going to anoint his body with oil. And that's what they do. They grab, the three of them gather up. They go outside the city. They've got their jar of oil, and they're ready to go. But when they get there, things aren't what they expected. They see an angel at the tomb. They didn't expect to see an angel, and the angel was inside the tomb. They expected uh, to see the stone in front of the tomb, but the stone wasn't in front of the tomb. And what they saw inside the tomb was the angel, and they didn't see a body. But let's see, say that's not how things went. Let's say they show up. They get there with their jar of oil. They see the angel outside the tomb. And just imagine if the angel on the outside of the tomb said this. If the angel said, hey, the spirit of your master lives on. Or maybe the mortal soul of Jesus has gone into heaven. How would you feel if you were one of those three women? You'd probably be encouraged. You'd probably be uplifted and comforted a little bit, but that's not what Mark records. What Mark records is that the stone's been rolled away. The angel's not outside the tomb, but inside the tomb, and there's no corpse. And instead of being encouraged and comforted, they are alarmed. And alarm may be too soft a translation for this word. It's, it's used also in Mark 14.33, just a couple chapters earlier. And in that chapter, Mark uses it to describe Jesus' inner disposition when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, he knows what's coming for him. He knows that he's going to have to absorb the wrath of God for the sin of humanity. And he's scared. And that's the same kind of scared that these three women are when they see that Jesus has resurrected in the body. 
And they're so scared that in verse 8, their alarm goes into bodily form and they tremble. What we see in that story is this short conversation that happens between the three women and the angel. The angel just gives them one thing to do. Just says, hey, go in and tell the disciples what's going on. So they turn their backs to the angel. They run out of the tomb. And they're not having casual conversation to go talk to the disciples. They're not saying, hey, uh, you want to stop along the way and get some brunch? They're not saying, oh, man, that was awesome. We just saw an angel. Did anybody get a pick of that? Because I'd really like to put it on my feed. No way. They, they took off. They, they threw that, that, that jar of oil up into the air like it was a grenade. Their hair was standing on end. Why? Because a body had been raised. See, this is not a story about the immortality of the soul. It is the, about the resurrection of flesh and blood. Now make no mistake, this post-resurrection body, it's a little different than it was before. What we know from the gospel accounts is that this new body can pass through doors. This new body isn't necessarily recognized by everyone who saw Jesus before. But this resurrection body is also kind of like the pre-resurrection body. It still eats. We see Jesus eating on the beach with his disciples. We see Jesus with the scars in his hands in this post-resurrected body. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus was like post-resurrection, but we do know that he wasn't a disembodied soul. This fits in right in with the rest of the Gospels and how, about how bodily Jesus really was. Jesus ate well and he drank well. He did so to the extent that he was called a glutton, meaning he ate in large amounts. He was called a drunkard, which means he drank in large amounts. We also see that he danced with his body. At least we think so. I mean, Jesus was a part of many festivities. He went to lots of weddings. And we know that at all Jewish weddings and all Jewish festivities, everybody danced, not just the young people. You also in the gospel see Jesus weeping with his eyes. You see him embracing other people's bodies with his body. You see him thirsting at the cross. You see him having physical pain at the cross. See, for some reason, the gospel writers want to make it very clear how bodily Jesus really was, both his pre-resurrected body and his post-resurrected body, all because bodies are important. I don't know about you, that makes me squirm. I'd rather just talk about the resurrection as an idea, as a philosophy. I'd rather just talk about the resurrection for what it does for my emotional life. But the resurrection is decidedly about a body. First Jesus's, then mine and yours. And that's what Paul is trying to do in 1 Corinthians 15. He's trying to show us how Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are tied up together. Let's start reading in verse 20. But in fact, Christ had been raised from the dead, the first fruits. And first fruits really just means first installment, meaning there's more raising from the dead coming. And the raising from the dead that's coming are for those who have fallen asleep, verse 20. And fallen asleep in the scripture always refers to being dead. Verse 21, for as by a man, referring to Adam, who's the first human being, came death. But then by a man, Jesus, who's the son of God, has come also in the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in all Adam, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And meaning alive means a new body. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. See, usually uh, we as Christians, when we talk about death, we bring up heaven. We bring up heaven because it's the ultimate comfort. That's okay in some ways. That's what we think. The scriptures really do say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but there's more to our hope than just heavens. We, we get a new body. That's what Paul's trying to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus got a new body at his resurrection, then we're going to get one too. A body that's not going to rot, it's not going to break down, it's not susceptible to coronavirus. It's going to be able to perform any number of feats except one. It can't die. See, we, we often talk about earth like we're just passing through as if heaven were our ultimate destiny, but it's not. Now, if you die today and you're in Christ and you'll go to heaven, but you're not going to be in heaven forever. See, when Christ returns to earth, you're going to come back and you're going to get your body and you're going to take a permanent residence right here. When you get that new body, you're going to be able to look in the mirror with no shame. You'll be able to go to the beach and not feel insecure. In that new body, you're not going to feel the tension from stress in your shoulders. You're not going to feel that boulder in your throat because of anger. You're not going to have that heart racing like a panic attack because of your anxiety. No one's going to use your body in the new heavens and new earth. No one's going to abuse your body in the new heavens and the new earth. No one's going to hit your body in the new heavens and the new earth. No one's ever going to judge your body in the new heavens and the new earth. Not even you. No, that's, that can't happen. Because in this new world, this perfect world, there'll be no evil, there'll be no devil, there'll be no sin, and there'll be no death. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus rose again from the dead with a body. And Jesus is going to give you a new body too. One that you're really, really going to like. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you would mend the relationships that we have with our bodies. Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a curiosity, a, a hunger, a, a longing for what this bodily existence will look like in paradise. Oh Lord, engage our hearts. Make us thankful that you rose again from the dead in a physical sense. Help us this day. Christ's name. Amen.